Hello, fellow travelers, and welcome to Adventures in Security, Episode 6 for Christmas Day, December 25th, 2005. I'm your host, Tom Olzak. This is a weekly podcast published each Sunday evening sometime before midnight. You can also find most of the information covered in our episodes at adventuresinsecurity.com. If you're interested in commenting on what you hear or about topics you'd like us to talk about, please send email to podcasts at adventuresinsecurity.com. The purpose of this podcast is the exploration of security management, including the crazy things people try to do to each other and to themselves. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. And uh, before we get going on the featured topic for this episode, which is analysis, detection, and containment and incident response, I'd like to take a few minutes and go over some current events and what these events may mean to your business. The first uh, story I'd like to talk about is the CAN-SPAM Act. The FTC reported this week that its enforcement of the CAN-SPAM Act, passed in 2003, has helped to significantly reduce the amount of spam seen by the typical home and business user. CAN-SPAM is an acronym for Controlling the Assault of Non-Solicited Pornography in Marketing. The FTC and other law enforcement agencies have filed about 50 lawsuits against spammers since the law went into effect, but there seems to be some dissent about the FTC's claims. According to a December 21, 2005 IDG News Service article published in Computer World Online entitled Vendors, Users Dispute FTC Report on Spam, Don Smutney, a website administrator and software developer, claims there's just as much spam on the Internet as there was two years ago. The only real change is that now the spammers are asking for banking and credit card information. In the same article, Scott Chason, Chief Technology Officer for MX Logic, asserts that can spam doesn't appear to have very much impact. According to MX Logic statistics, 68% of email traffic scanned in 2005 was spam, down from 77% in 2004. This may sound like a positive trend, but only 4% of unsolicited email complied with can spam requirements such as a valid return email address, a valid postal address for the sending company, and a meaningful and relevant subject line. In addition to the small increase in canned spam compliance, it appears that the spam that is currently hitting business networks is much more malicious than two years ago. In a December 21, 2005 article in SC Magazine Online entitled War on Spam Progressing, Tom Gillis, Senior Vice President for Marketing at Ironport Systems, is quoted as saying, We are seeing a shift. More and more, we are seeing blended threats. We've also seen a 200% increase in email containing spyware. End quote. From my experience with battling spam at the network perimeter, I can tell you I haven't seen much of a drop either. However, we deal with this by filtering out most spam before it gets to our email servers by using Tumbleweed's email filtering software. It catches malware-infested email as well as suspected spam. It also allows us to block known spam or spyware sites either manually one by one or by using Tumbleweed's database of known malicious sites. Even with this protection, phishing email still finds its way through to our end users. The world of email will probably never be safe from malicious messages. So what can you do to protect your business? 
First ensure you filter messages before they get to your email servers. This can be done through the purchase of a system you host or by subscribing to a service through which your email is filtered prior to delivery to your network perimeter. You can start by taking a look at the Sprint or End MCI offerings in this area. Second, install anti-spyware on your end-user devices, in addition to the antivirus software you should already have in place. This will serve as a line of defense against messages that get through your filtering services. Finally, educate your employees. The following points should be driven home as often as possible. Never open email or attachments from a sender that can't be identified or from a sender you don't know, and never click on a link in an email asking for personal or business information. If an employee believes the request may be valid, go to the requester's website by using a site address obtained from another trusted source. In a December 21, 2005 PC World article entitled Security Experts Warn of Mobile Malware, Elizabeth Montalbano writes that mobile viruses are growing rapidly. In fact, according to McAfee Avert Labs, mobile malware has grown nearly 10 times faster than PC malware over a one-year period. More disturbing is Montalbano's assertion that mobile viruses are potentially more dangerous than PC viruses because they can spread much more rapidly. This is due to the conditions created by individuals and organizations not deploying antivirus software on their handheld devices. Further, McAfee contends that Internet users in general don't view handheld devices as being as vulnerable to attack as their desktop and laptop cousins. This article brings up some important vulnerabilities surrounding the increased use of handheld devices for business purposes. In a paper I wrote in March of this year, I included a list of items that might be found on the handheld device used by one of your employees. The list included passwords and user IDs used to access company resources, in-process project information, employee information, including work contacts, which can be turned into fodder for social engineering attacks, electronic protected health information, defined in HIPAA as EPHI, email, and credit card information. The loss of a mobile device is serious, but you know what happened, then you can take steps to defend against potential problems caused by the compromise of its contents. But malware infections of a device might go undetected, providing information to an attacker without your knowledge. There are several things you can do to protect your business from data compromise. First, include handheld device use policies in your security program. Second, ensure password protection is turned on for all mobile devices. Third, educate your employees. Make sure they understand the importance of proper security. Finally, install anti-malware software on your mobile devices that looks for and eliminates viruses, worms, trojans, spyware, and other applications that are potentially unwanted. For more information about this topic, Download the paper, Wireless Handheld Device Security, from the Security Papers page at adventuresinsecurity.com. Our final installment in our current events segment is a look at the publication of the Panaman Institute's 2005 National Encryption Survey. In a December 22, 2005 article in Computer World Online, Larry Panaman writes that only 4.2% of companies responding to the survey said their organizations have an enterprise-wide encryption plan. 
This doesn't mean that encryption is not used at all, however. According to the survey, 47% of respondents use encryption to protect sensitive or confidential electronic documents when exchanging them with another system or location. 24% encrypt sensitive or confidential backup files or tapes before sending them to off-site storage locations, and only 31% encrypt sensitive or confidential data on laptops. Fellow travelers, security best practice dictates that we protect sensitive and confidential information in transit or at rest, that means on tape or disk. Many organizations might believe that it's enough to provide access controls, but recent history doesn't support that belief, especially as it applies to backup media. In late February of 2005, for example, Bank of America said that it had lost backup tapes containing information on about 1.2 million charge cards. In another example, Time Warner announced in mid-2005 that information on 600,000 current and former, former employees was missing. This is just a short list, and most of the lost tape and data incidents associated with less well-known companies most likely go unreported. Whether you encrypt your data on disks or on tape depends on your company's assessment of the risk versus the cost of encryption. But be sure that you, your senior management, and your IS department don't just ignore the possible business impact. That's all for current events segment of this episode. Let's move on to our featured topic. In last week's episode, we took a look at the preparation component in an incident management program. As a reminder, there are a total of five components. Prepare, detect and analyze, contain, eradicate, and manage. In this episode, we'll examine detect and analyze as well as contain. Detection of security incidents requires the implementation of various types of controls, physical, logical, and administrative. Each of these control areas provides layered support to the others. Some examples of individual controls that fall into these areas include, in the physical, motion detectors, smoke and fire detectors, security cameras, and sensors and alarms. In the logical area, intrusion detection systems, intrusion prevention systems, and logging. And then the administrative area, rotation of duties, security reviews and audits, mandatory vacations, performance evaluations, and background investigations. As we discuss the analyze and detect component of incident management, we'll walk through some steps that will take your incident response teams, or IRTs, from detection to a plan for handling an incident. Once one of your controls provides evidence of a security incident, it's important that you assess what the evidence means. Disconnecting your data center from the network because you get a couple of log entries indicating a malware attack may be okay if you're actually under attack, but what if it was just an explainable and acceptable network anomaly? Explaining loss of service delivery may be difficult if you haven't practiced due diligence before making this kind of decision. Due diligence includes the following steps. Perform an initial assessment to determine the type of incident. Develop an action plan to contain and eradicate the threat and document all activities associated with the incident. Once you confirm that an incident is occurring or has occurred, immediately notify the appropriate IRT. The team's initial response should include a high-level assessment of the following. The initial evidence, including logs and alerts, the general state of the system allegedly affected, 
and the general state of the network overall. Again, this is a high-level assessment. Digging too deeply at this stage might result in unnecessary delays leading to increased business impact. Using personnel who are familiar with the system, facility, or network being assessed is critical. Individuals who are familiar with day-to-day characteristics of a potential target should be capable of quickly completing the initial assessment. Along with the initiation of the initial assessment, the IRT manager should begin documenting all response activities. This documentation will track details about incident management activities that you can use in post-incident assessments. It also provides a historical record of findings and actions taken, which is often valuable when the exact nature of the attack is hard to identify. Some of the items that should be included in your documentation include the current status of the incident. This is normally kept in a running log. The log is a valuable tool for tracking the activities of the IRT, the way in which the attack evolves, and for reporting status to senior management. A summary of the incident. Actions taken by all members of the IRTs. Contact information for all involved parties. A list of evidence gathered general observations, and pending activities. Pending activities should be prioritized based on the criticality of the resources affected. In other words, assess the business impact of not performing each activity on your list. For example, if you need to run payroll the day of the attack, activities surrounding recovery of the payroll system will take precedence over just about anything else. Again, Perform just enough analysis work to get a general understanding of what you're facing. There's a balance between too much analysis and not understanding the attack well enough to effectively contain it. Once you understand the nature of the attack on your enterprise, you're ready to minimize its effects. This is the purpose of the contained component. The primary objectives during containment activities are to mitigate personal risk to employees and customers and to mitigate risk to your business. Secondary objectives include the collection of evidence and the identification of the attacker. Note that the most important objective is the protection of people from injury or death. Protection of information processing systems, crime scenes, or the capture and punishment of an attacker are all far less important. There are various ways to contain a threat. The containment strategy selected depends on the type of threat, the objectives of the attack, potential damage to or theft of resources, the need for preservation of evidence, the importance of restoring one or more affected systems, and the opportunity costs associated with a specific strategy. If a single containment activity takes most of your available resources, for example, what additional damage may be caused because you were unable to deal with other effects of the threat? Strategies you might consider include Shutting down target systems, that is, servers, workstations, routers, switches, etc. Care should be taken when considering system shutdowns. This often destroys evidence. However, it may be necessary to prevent significant loss of data or to quickly contain a rapidly spreading attack. Another strategy is to disconnect target systems from the network. Or you might disable certain services on one or more systems. In the case of human intrusions, you should ensure the safety of personnel in your facility. If you have company security officers on site, take steps to delay the intruder. And finally, 
you should also notify local law enforcement. Containing a threat is essential if you want to have any chance of eradicating it. Otherwise, you're just trying to hit a moving target. The final piece in our discussion of containment is forensics. Forensics is a scientific approach to determining the who, what, when, where, how, and why of a crime. For our purposes, it specifically deals with investigating the causes and timeline of a security incident. Applying forensic processes during containment may not be practical. As discussed earlier, there are often more important considerations. However, this is a good place in the process to begin thinking about how to balance damage control with collecting the information necessary to prevent or deter future attacks. It's outside the scope of this episode to go into detail on investigative techniques. There are several good books available that address forensics in general and computer forensics specifically, but reviewing the following considerations provides a rough foundation. First, retain your objectivity. Collect data and evidence, conduct interviews, and leave your conclusions until you have enough information to clearly see what actually happened. Jumping to conclusions early in the process usually results in the investigator ignoring anything that seems irrelevant because it doesn't fit with his mental picture of what happened. Next, ensure the proper collection and handling of evidence. Much of the evidence you collect may be volatile and difficult to preserve. Be sure to have at least one person on each IRT trained in proper evidence collection, tagging, and storage. Some types of evidence to consider include computer screen displays, reports, notes, system usage patterns, hardware configuration, contents of storage devices, including removable storage devices, and contents of bags, briefcases, and purses. When collecting evidence from personal areas, be sure to maintain compliance with company privacy policies. From the time evidence is collected to the time it's no longer needed to support criminal or civil action, it must be properly handled. Proper handling begins with collection. As a piece of evidence is initially collected, the following information should be recorded in a chain of custody form. The item's description, the manufacturer, model number, IP address, MAC address, serial number, and any other distinguishing characteristics. To maintain a clear chain of custody, you must also include the name, phone number, title, and signature of the person collecting the information, and of each subsequent individual who takes possession of the evidence. This entry should also include the date and time of taking possession, as well as the location where the evidence was securely stored. If a computer is seized as evidence, image the hard disk as soon as possible. Never run computer forensic software on any original storage media. This usually diminishes the value of the evidence. The image should be created with a bit-level copy. This ensures that every piece of information is extracted from storage, even data intentionally hidden. Well, that's it for this week. I hope we were able to make your life a little easier. Until next time, be careful what you click.